Welcome to Conversations Live, housing. Tonight we come to you from the traditional territories of the Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, and Squamish First Nations, whose people have lived on and continue to call these lands home, OCM. Housing, my oh my, has it ever risen to the highest level of attention. Every day you read stories in the Vancouver Sun and the topic is filling the airwaves, one announcement after another. Yesterday, it was the province unveiling its flipping tax. And today, I heard that the feds announced another $120 million to produce more affordable housing. But housing is a complex topic. Historically, housing zoning decisions have been made at the local level. Cities and municipalities develop official community plans that lay out what can and cannot be built and where. Both the provincial and federal governments of traditionally had an arm's length relationship to housing. Well, not anymore. Housing is every government's issue. From soaring rental costs to skyrocketing home prices, the housing crisis, especially in British Columbia, touches the lives of individuals and families across the entire socioeconomic spectrum. Tonight, we're examining a wide range of topics, but nowhere near all of the facets of the housing sector. Our panel includes the Minister of Housing, Ravi Kalon, Coquitlam Mayor Richard Stewart, Ryan Berlin, economist and housing market storyteller at Renico, A.J. DeLille, the Vice President of Real Estate at RBC, David Hutniak, the CEO at Landlord BC, and then, of course, there's the venerable Michael Geller. <laughs> He's an architect, planner, developer, and real estate consultant. And... Bon vivant, know it all about everything to do with, with housing. <laughs> as well, we have a number of video clips from other experts, such as hockey, KPMG hockey. I've got, I missed, suddenly I, I blanked on your last name. I know it's CA. <laughs> and others, such as we've got a clip from the Premier, another one from the Prime Minister, and others. Now, just before we begin, I want to express my wholehearted gratitude to our sponsors who make this evening possible. Without them, we just simply couldn't do it. Our presenting sponsors are RBC, KPMG, and Helijet. Our event sponsors are Stem Cell Technologies, Fortis BC, Landlord BC, Polygon, BD, the Port of Vancouver, the Digital Technology Supercluster, LNG Canada, and Research Co. is uh, along with our media partner, the Vancouver Sun. And BCIT is also a supporter. And I want to give a special thank you to Apogee Public Relations and give a shout out to my team at Old Boy Productions crew who are experts in live online virtual productions like this one. And uh, they make this all possible so that we can have it both in person and live online. Now, one last question to anybody who wishes to pose a question, whether you're here in our in-room audience or you're online, please go to slido.com, enter the password conversations and send in your questions. Sean Hall, our Slido master, is receiving your questions. They will be displayed at different times during the event on screen for those online. And your questions, even though we won't be able to get to them all, they will help me uh, in, in helping to formulate some of the questions that we're going to ask. And Sean will be reading some of them specifically to the panel. Now, just before we get to the panel, to further set the stage, here is Mario Canseco of Research Co., who just conducted a poll about our opinions on housing 
on which party is the best to navigate the challenge and how we move forward. Samaya, can you please play the clip from Mario? When BC residents are asked about their level of confidence in different people to deliver affordable housing, a BC government led by the BC NDP is endorsed by almost half of respondents, a significantly higher number than what is observed for three other political parties. Municipal governments do better than their federal counterparts under either the liberal or conservative parties. Confidence is extremely low for some developers, at just 22%. The policies that have been in place for a few years to deal with housing remain popular across British Columbia. More than 7 in 10 BC residents agree with both the increase and expansion of the foreign buyers tax, while more than 3 in 5 endorse the speculation tax, as well as two measures intended to generate tax revenue from homes valued at more than $3 million. At this point, support is also high for some policies that have been recently implemented by the BC government. More than two-thirds of BC residents are in favor of building more modular homes, a three-day protection period for financing and home inspections, and a cap on rent increases. Majorities are also in favor of new guidelines related to the governance of stratas, as well as two measures that seek to limit the impact of short-term rental businesses in the housing market. The federal government recently announced that the ban on non-Canadians purchasing residential properties in Canada will remain in place until 2027. In BC, 7 in 10 residents believe this is the right course of action. Support is highest among residents who voted for the BC NDP in the 2020 provincial election, but majorities of those who cast ballots for the BC Greens and the BC Liberals four years ago are also in favor of the federal ban. Almost two-thirds of BC residents believe that the federal government should tie immigration numbers to affordable housing targets and new housing starts. Almost half of BC residents also think the BC government was correct in implementing a renter's rebate for certain households. As has been the case for the past couple of years, the level of support for cancelling the homeowner grant is particularly low. In spite of the popularity of many of the housing policies that are in place already, BC residents are split on the ultimate effect of the government's actions. While 41% expect the measures to be effective, 47% believe they will be ineffective. Age plays a role in the way these views are developed, with most young adults expressing hope that the situation will improve, while their older counterparts are more skeptical. For Conversations Live, I'm Mario Canseco from ResearchGo. Thank you, Mario. Well, Mr. Kalon, you've been busy on a number of fronts introducing legislation designed to increase the supply of housing with the suggestion that these measures will not only increase that supply, but also affect housing affordability. According to Gary Penway, the changes that you have enacted are the most significant changes to local government planning and development regulations since the Town Planning Act was introduced in 1925. Your objective is to create more affordable housing. However, I'd like to ask you to start uh, by describing what exactly is affordable housing. How do we achieve it? How do we get there? 
Uh, thanks so much, uh, Stu, and thanks for the softball start. <laughs> it's uh, lovely to be here with uh, with all of you, and uh, I'll start by acknowledging that I'm on the traditional territory of the Lekwungen-speaking people, the Songhees and Esquimalt nations. I appreciate you introducing Mr. Geller as the know-it-all and not me. Uh, and uh, again, thank you for all the folks that are participating in this important conversation. Uh, the, it's a real challenge, uh, Stu, quite frankly, uh, when we talk about uh, affordable housing, because it's all relative to the individual. Uh, when I speak to uh, folks who are struggling, um, that are you know, making $30,000, $40,000 a year, uh, what's affordable to them? is not what's affordable to somebody who's a teacher or um, perhaps a firefighter. And so that's why the, the actions that we've taken just over the last few weeks to introduce BC builds is so critically important. Historically, what we've focused on is what we measure as affordable housing for those making below $85,000. So anything from shelters to supportive housing to uh, housing for low-income families. But we know now that the global housing crisis that we're dealing with, the challenge for middle-income families is, is also great. Uh, in fact, most mayors, when I speak to them, they're talking about how do we attract teachers, how do we attract healthcare workers, and their incomes are slightly higher. And so um, it's a real challenge. But what we try to focus on is trying to get, when it comes to rents, 30% uh, of, uh, of a household's income uh, going towards rent. That's what CMAC defines as uh, affordable rent. And of course, home ownership is uh, in, in um, uh, is different for uh, every single person, depending on the market. But it's a real challenge, too. Uh, I appreciate having this conversation. And I appreciate you framing it the way you have, which is correct, which is housing is complex. If there was one solution that could solve housing and the challenges we're dealing with, it would have been done a long time ago. What's required is doing multiple things and doing them all together. And, uh, and that's what we're trying to do here in British Columbia. Thanks, Ryan. When you uh, listen to the minister's uh, explanation about uh, affordable housing, uh, is that attainable? Like when we look at what the value of land and property is here in British Columbia, can we get to that point where people can buy houses within that range of their salary? See, I think the language we use around this is, um, is important. You said buy houses, and we know that that is a uh, a dwindling, um, th those are in dwindling supply in this region. Um, and not, not to nitpick there, but I think, yeah. you know, how we talk about housing and homes and affordability probably needs a bit more nuance. And, you know, the minister says, you know, you know, references CMHC and the 30% threshold of uh, gross income going to housing. That's also one of those things like the inflation target rate of 2% mm -hmm. that has, it's like we've all said it to each other and validated ourselves in doing that, but there hasn't been a, you know, enough attention on or research into really what is affordable. Like I, I, would, I, would, I would say that somebody who's at the lower end of the income spectrum, after they pay their housing costs, whatever they have left over is not very much if you have a low income to pay for all of life's necessities. Maybe at the lower end of the income spectrum, the affordability threshold's like 15%. I don't know. Um, we know that for owners, you go to the other end of the spectrum, the rich, richest segment of the of the population. You know, you go into a bank and uh, you want to borrow some money, and they'll qualify you up to say forty percent of your income going to housing. So, you know, in that in that instance, you're immediately thrust into an unaffordable situation. But but no, you you haven't been. You chose that. So I think some nuance around what is affordable, uh, what affordability means. I, so I've been I've been 
doing what I'm doing for about 20 years now, and, and I know that we um, CMHC looks back to 2004 as sort of a benchmark for affordability, but I don't remember us talking about housing being tremendously affordable in 2004. Um, so I think it's something that we need to, um, we just need to, uh, you know, add a little bit more nuance to and be a bit more thoughtful about. Mayor Stewart, uh, you're going great guns there uh, in Coquitlam. Uh, it, can you deliver affordable housing? Well, no municipality can all by themselves, obviously. We need a, a vast amount of housing because we haven't built enough of certain types of housing. Uh, so back in the 90s, mid-90s, I was one of those pounding the drum. I had started a group called Society for Housing Affordability in BC, and we were pounding the drum because we weren't building any rental housing. And if we didn't start building rental housing in the mid-90s, um, we would come to a point where, uh, in 20 or 30 years, where all of our rental housing, purpose-built rental housing, was at the end of its life, and there wasn't any 20-year-old rental housing that would become the next generation of affordable rentals. Um, we're there now, obviously. We, we didn't build any rental housing for three or four decades to speak of, and in Coquitlam, we massively challenged to foster the creation of rental housing in a market where government has said we're going to limit rent increases, where landlords are starting to struggle with the regulations, and we're, we're seeing less and less interest in being a landlord, and, and so that's on the rental side. But and we can't, we obviously as a municipality, we can't foster enough housing generally. We've got uh, tens of thousands of units in stream, uh, and all, we actually have more than 10,000 units permitted that haven't been started in, uh, in, for many of them, in a decade. They've been permitted more than a decade ago. I was, I actually wasn't mayor yet. I've been mayor for 15 years. I wasn't mayor yet when we gave a development permit to one particular developer. It's uh, about 5,000 units. They haven't started it yet, um, 15 years later. And those are the challenges. We, it's not a question of approvals necessarily. It's about the fact that market conditions, that everybody has to play a role here, the development sector, the, uh, you know, they are, the develop, certainly the planners, we don't have enough planners. There's all kinds of challenges that local governments face in trying to make sure, uh, you know, those of us that have been approving as much as we can, we, we were about 99%. If it gets to councils, the floor of council, it's 99% approved, uh, and lots of there are communities that are achieving that as well, and there's others that haven't been. And so our challenge is, let's not reinvent the wheel. Let's make sure we can foster the things that are happening well, and, and then go to those communities that are having more challenges and uh, help them along. But the one size fits all has been a, a, a real tough. Um, challenge for us uh, as we look to the future of perhaps 2024 having less housing built in Coquitlam than in 2023. David, um, you know, the, the mayor mentioned purpose-built uh, rental. Uh, it's not like we haven't been building rental over the last 25, 30 years, but it just never came in that form. You represent so many people who are mm -hmm. landlords, uh, but they are not uh, you know, host a massive structures. Maybe some of your members are, but there's a, an interesting mix. How do we create an environment where those people who are buying those condos and putting them in the rental market can do so at a, at a, in a way that protects them, but also provides rental housing? 
that's affordable? Yeah, I think uh, the mayor, first of all, made a great point in that, uh, you know, purpose-built rental basically ignored for 40 years. And the fact of the matter is uh, we are, you know, too dependent on the secondary market, investor condos, basement suites, et cetera. And, and you know, we're, we're largely stuck in that situation where we need the secondary market to basically continue to deliver uh, <clears throat> rental housing in British Columbia because it's so difficult to build purpose-built rental. And, and you know, until we, we uh, get that, that balance right, and right now the risk-reward imbalance <clears throat> between building a condo and purpose-built rental, you know, while it has improved or had, had improved marginally over the past, you know, six, seven years because of different policies, and now the Fed's eliminated GST, et cetera, the, the harsh reality is that now with high interest rates and high costs of construction, we're back to that same scenario where, you know, we're going to continue to be dependent upon building or having uh, condos, uh, secondary market rental homes, provide the majority of rental housing going forward. Uh, uh, Minister Kalan, you know, he's trying, he's initiating uh, a couple of uh, uh, well, a couple of initiatives. One is to encourage uh, uh, folks with secondary units or potential secondary units, interest-free loans. You know, these uh, small initiatives, you know, together are going to make some some difference. But by and large, until we reconcile the the fact that the risk-reward imbalance for purpose-built rental versus building investor condos is just uh, simply, uh, you know, the gap is just too large. Uh, from a policy perspective, from a long-term housing perspective, we're going to be in, continue to be a challenge. So, AJ, as you uh, listen to us wanting to be able to develop uh, purpose-built and a variety of other projects, what's the likelihood that we're going to be able to finance these pur purpose-built uh, um, buildings? Uh, it's a complex financial uh, mathematical equation to be able to do that. How do we bring those financial resources together to be able to meet that demand? Yeah, thanks. Uh, it's, a, it's a good question. Um, not that complex, actually, of a financial model, to be honest with you. I mean, when we're looking to, to finance a, a rental build, I mean, there's only really three variables that matter, and what's the income, and what's the interest rate, and how many years do you want to amortize the thing over? And, and so here, um, you know, on, on my team at RBC, we're financing lots of the commercial real estate transactions that are going on in British Columbia. And, you know, we've got lots of capital. And we've got lots of capital that would be relatively inexpensive compared to the other capital sources out there. And as long as the transaction has, you know, makes economic sense. And what I mean by economic sense is, does the rents pay for the mortgage? and maybe a little bit of left over every year. And if we can come up with a, a, a model that that works, then we're going to be able to finance these projects. Mr. Geller, you've been listening. Sum up where we're at right at the moment. Well, first of all, thank you for the introduction. And as people are about to discover, I actually don't know everything. I just <laughs> pretend to know everything. I came here in 74 with CMHC. And at that time, we were approving thousands of nonprofit and co-op units every year. And that was creating the housing 
that people in the marketplace couldn't afford. In 1976, Donald Gutstein wrote a book called Vancouver Limited, which talked about the housing crisis and who was responsible. And he looked at the role of developers, the role of government, and so forth. The point is, we have perceived a housing crisis in this region for over 50 years. But the reality is, it is far worse today, I think, than it has ever been in the 50 years I've been in Vancouver. The, the problem we face, though, is land costs are high. A lot in Vancouver is maybe 200,000, 2 million. If you could put 10 homes on it, which is what we're now proposing in some instances, you're still looking at $200,000 per home, per apartment. Even if you do, as the minister is proposing and others are proposing, dramatically increase the density, I think it's a fallacy to believe that that is going to result in much lower rents. The fact is, when you look at the cost of construction and interest rates and the simple formula that you apply, AJ, the rents are pretty much going to end up being 4 or $5 a foot for every new project. So the reality is, we do need the government to continue to fund what we call truly affordable housing. And the last comment I'd make at the beginning is, the reality is, if we wanted to make housing affordable for everybody, we would probably have to reduce the value of all the existing homes 30 to 40%. And there are very few people watching us today who want to see that happen. Thank you, Michael. Samaya, so, so can I get you to play the uh, clip from Hockey? Uh, that we've called housing crisis because he brings up a very interesting point. And then, Minister Kalon, I'd like to get your response. Uh, the business uh, of supplying housing is facing some significant challenges today uh, in a high interest rate environment, unpredictable construction costs, as well as government policy and levies is really making performers not work today. It's very difficult to make performers work. So as a result, the whole development industry, the whole business of creating housing supply is taking a pause. Uh, it's very hard to land bank today because of high holding costs. And it's also, um, in some cases, they're even holding back some development projects. Uh, and so with demand still raging on with record immigration numbers and housing starts at a, you know, one half of the demand, um, that certainly, that basically defines our housing crisis. So when you, when you hear that, Mr. Kalon, um how do we, through the legislation that you're introducing, try and close that gap? How do we get the development community to say, okay, we're going to step in and fill this when at the moment they seem to be stepping back a bit? Well, it's a combination uh, of things. And I think uh, Mr. Geller made a really good point, which is uh, the private sector alone won't be able to solve the housing crisis as we have it now. Government has to invest in affordable housing uh, at, a, at a great level because we are two decades uh, behind when it comes to that. Now, I think part of the reforms that we've uh, brought forward uh, is about creating more predictability uh, and getting a, the ability to get to decisions in a quicker way. And, and, I, and I would say, for example, um, the, the changes we've made around public hearings for projects that already fit within community plans, official community plans in communities. Now, I always have found it frustrating, and I've said this on many occasions, that we uh, engage with our citizens. We say, here's the, the plan that we want as a community. Here's where we want the housing. And then when somebody brings a proposal 
forward that already fits within that plan, we make them go through an entire process again. That unpredictability, that, that time delay, that's money. Uh, and, uh, and that uncertainty is not helping us. And, and so that's just one reform, whether there, there's a cost reform and so there's more predictability upfront. So everyone knows what the cost is instead of later on. Those types of reforms, more predictability on what people are allowed to build, having communities make community plans that are uh, 20 year plans for their growth and doing that by engaging their communities. All these things are about reducing red tape, creating more certainty so that we can get housing built. But no doubt, this is a perfect storm. All of the guests have uh, highlighted the challenges. We have uh, high interest rates. We have global inflation that's putting pressure on all the inputs that go into uh, having projects come across the line. Interest rates are a real challenge, but we need to continue to push through. We need to reform our systems so that we're not expecting uh, you know, one result by doing the same thing over and over again. And that's what we've been trying to do from the provincial level. In the way that I see it, though, has somewhat a blanket uh, policy that applies to virtually every community here, especially in the Lower Mainland. And Richard Stewart, you have some challenges with that. <laughs> Please don't paint us all with the same brush. Uh, and, and we say that all the time, and, and development industry says the same thing. Don't paint us all with the same brush. Our challenge is that there's five or six communities in the Lower Mainland that we're building more than their fair share. Uh, we have been for a decade, um, and I can name them. They're Burnaby and they're Surrey and Township of Langley. They, these communities have been doing a great job. Uh, Coquitlam is among them. And our challenge now is how do we adapt everything we've been doing that's been very successful, change it all, because it's that, that is now the, the entire framework has changed. And, and that is our, our, our biggest challenge with the, the changes. Absolutely agree with the minister that change was necessary, that we weren't going to get to the kind of housing uh, starts that we needed uh, doing the same thing. Uh, particularly in, in those communities that weren't carrying their weight. Um, however, making all communities change what they were doing, including those communities that were really, really successful at building housing, uh, is, uh, from my perspective, a, a little bit challenging. And, and local governments are, are reeling now. We don't have enough planners. We can't get the rezonings done to meet uh, the province's timelines of the end of June uh, without pulling back on a whole bunch of the approvals that were already in stream and then rejigging things. We've actually had developers come in and pull their project because they think the new rules might be better and uh, it'll slow us down by a year on that project. But uh, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that we will be able to catch back up again and, and get back to building what we were building in 2023. Ryan, do you think that the legislation that the province has brought in, though, has uh, many great and, and strong beneficial elements to it? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Am I baiting you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I think that I, I, where the government's coming from, when we look at from the federal government to the provincial down to the municipal level, it's all coming from the, the same places. How do we expand supply? And I sort of... In, in trying to keep track of all of the policies that have been announced and implemented over the past year, uh, evaluating each one and sort of assessing whether, you know, it's going to have a, a significant impact or a marginal impact on supply. And there's not one policy I look at that go, where I go, like, that is, that's what we need. 
but you know, together, I think the policies, generally speaking, um, Mayor Stewart, I, I hear what you're saying about the challenges at the at the municipal level, um, accommodating the changes, but everything is sort of geared towards more supply, and, we, and and we know we need that. I think everybody's on board with that. What's really interesting is we actually started construction on more homes last year than we ever have in history by a, by a huge margin, by like 20%. Um, now, not to take any credit away from the, the sitting provincial government, but um, the decision to build those 33,000 homes regionally preceded any of the, the, the policy announcements to enhance supply that, that have been made over the past year. Um, so we had a market where homes were selling, and if homes sell, if they pre-sell, we have built a lot of multifamily and developers need to pre-sell homes, um, then there's a high likelihood they get built. And if we don't sell them, then they won't get built. And so that's where I have some concerns going forward. We've been sort of in a, a period of very slow pre-sales. Um, on account of market conditions, no doubt about it, but we also have um, REDMA, for example, the Real Estate Development Marketing Act, which does restrict um, the ability of some projects to go ahead, to launch, um, where developers need to sell, call it 60 to 70% of the, the total value of the project within, um, call it 12 months. Projects today, Redmo was introduced in uh, 2004, 2005. And if you look at the size and complexity and the cost of projects back then compared to today, it's, it's night and day. And yes, we had a little bump up in that marketing period from nine months to 12 months during COVID. But projects now, as we look at TOD, ta bigger towers, uh, more non-residential space and non-market housing, uh, these are very complex projects. And I think we need to figure out a way to make sure that developers are willing to come to the market with them. Because otherwise, I mean, there's no hope for us to continue to build at the pace we did last year. And we need to do that every year for the next, call it 15 years, to have any hope. You, you touch on an interesting point. I've been driving around the Lower Mainland, and everywhere I go, there are cranes in the sky, and the amount of construction going on is extraordinary. And I can't help but think, well, if we want to build more, who's going to do it? Like, where are we going to get the talent? Where are we going to get the materials? Like, is it possible? I mean, I think it's incredible that we managed to, so we have, you know, over 30,000 housing starts in the region last year. We currently have over 60,000 homes that are under construction, which is an amazing accomplishment given how tight the labor market is, low unemployment rates, high job vacancy rates, even in construction. So it is quite a feat. I'm proud of us collectively that we're able to get to that point at least and show that it can be done. But really the question is, like, as this wave of construction crests and we complete these buildings which we need to do how do we ensure that there's that continued supply coming behind it sean i'd like to ask you uh if you can read oh mr kaline you want to respond to that okay and then we'll go to yeah, a question I, from one of our viewers yeah. <laughs> if i can Stu, it's uh, weird to have uh, everyone there and me on the screen but i i just do want to say that i appreciate the comments that were just made uh if we think that we're going to be able to address the housing crisis, but we can afford to wait till we have enough planners or wait till we have enough people in the trades. Uh, we're just not going to be able to do it. 
uh, this is just a frank reality. Uh, we are doing, taking historic steps to train people up. We've got now um, a new, through the PNP, the ability to fast track immigration for planners, for certain trades that we need. We need to continue to upskill people to, to do that work. But fundamentally, we need to innovate. Uh, we need to think about our processes and simplify them when it comes to how we do zoning. And that's the legislation reforms are about. Uh, when we look at uh, how we approve building permits, we need to digitize. We need to go towards more automatic codes of compliance checks so that the system can automatically check these digitally produced products uh, and, and have it done in a more efficient manner. We need to use more prefabricated building materials, uh, you know, use mass timber and other ways of building where it's uh, mostly done off site and the assembly on site is just that, just assembly. And so I just wanted to highlight that point because it's an excellent point that was raised, but we have to start looking at doing things differently. I'm proud of the work we're doing with the digital supercluster, in fact, uh, to help, uh, uh, speed up some of the digital reform, but it's going to require a lot more innovation. It's going to require a lot more partners to come to the table to help us uh, address all those challenges while we continue to increase supply of housing. Mr. Geller, I saw you wanting to uh, respond here. Well, first of all, I, I mean, I think this is important that we spend half the evening discussing how gloomy everything is, and then the <laughs> other half discussing the fact that there are solutions. There are solutions when it comes to construction. The minister is absolutely right. I think it's interesting that in Mario Canseco's survey, the highest score was given to interest and support for modular housing. And so factory-built housing, uh, manufactured homes, manufactured home communities, they offer tremendous potential and yet they're often ignored. Um, certainly, I'm currently working with Woodworks to promote uh, mass timber construction. Today there's a public hearing in Vancouver proposing the idea of allowing extra height for mass timber buildings compared to concrete buildings as an incentive to encourage developers to perhaps pay that extra 4% to try out this more sustainable form of development. So there are solutions when it comes to construction. We do though have to recognize that many of our labor force are getting old, and unlike planning consultants, they can't keep going when they're 76. They have to give it up. So uh, that's a reality we have to face. David, when you uh, listen to what we're talking about, what are the elements of legislation that have been introduced that are helping your members move forward in producing more rental housing? But what are some of the areas that you would still like to see changes? Well, I'm very close to the screen here. Can can the minister hit me in the back of the head? Uh, <laughs> no, but you can feel him breathing down the back of your neck. Yeah. <laughs> I can, actually. Uh, well, you know, certainly there are challenges on, on the legislative front uh, in terms of rental housing providers. Uh, you know, the minister and I talked uh, uh, extensively about the rent increase caps and... and uh, you know, it's a very challenging environment. Certainly, we are seeing uh, small mom-and-pop landlords leaving the sector. Um, many of them are going to short-term rental. That problem has kind of been solved. But nevertheless, uh, absolutely. And I, I know the minister is not insensitive to this. Uh, he recognizes that there needs to be some, uh, some balance in terms of uh, the legislation. Certainly, 
you know, we've been very, uh, very pleased that uh, the government put uh, $15.5 million, pardon me, into the residential tenancy branch so that both landlords and tenants have access to timely uh, justice. But nevertheless, I think our message to the minister continues to be that, you know, we need to be, we need to be, uh, take the foot off the pedal in terms of more regulation, more legislation when it comes to our sector. Uh, and you know, I guess time will tell to see to see where we where we end up with all that those conversations. Uh, but I do want to take this a uh, second here to say that I think, you know, I think you asked the question of Ryan is is are the policies working? And and one that as as a housing advocate, I think Bill Bill Forty Seven and the minister can talk a little bit more about it himself. But you know, the fact the transit oriented development. I mean, many of us who were you know arguing for you know the 200 meter limit was ridiculous and now you know the densities that we can have around transit or oriented development is really going to be significant and i think it has a real uh, significant opportunity for building purpose-built rental in particular the other thing is i mean we've always had you know uh, the situation where growth is paying for growth and in, in many respects a, a lot of what the the minister is attempting to do here is, is shift that, uh, and, and in particular, that needs to be done for purpose-built rental, and, and frankly, now for condos as well. So, so I, I feel there's some really good uh, work being done here, and, and I definitely agree with uh, the comments, uh, and the minister as well, and Michael's comments, about there's so much uh, need and opportunity for innovation here. If you talk to average citizens as opposed to a bunch of housing nerds, uh, all they care about is that politicians, you know, get their act together, you know, build some housing here, find solutions as opposed to looking for, uh, you know, the negatives. So, Sean, I'd like to go to question number three here from well, one of our viewers. Um, can you uh, present that to the panel, please? I can. Uh, so the question is, do you believe that more supply and more densification will lead to more affordability? Burnaby's mayor said, the idea that supply will lead to affordability is an absolute fallacy and won't lead to affordable homes for middle-class families. So why not? Isn't that what the whole mantra has been? More supply will bring down uh, prices? Um, AJ, do you have something <laughs> on that? I, I know that it's... But isn't that supposed to be the way the, the math works? Well, I think if you uh, talked to a lot of the developers, and we have the privilege of dealing with many of them here in British Columbia, and if you look in the, uh, the towers in the sky, we're in probably 60% of those deals out there. Uh, um, and and uh, it, it, it's, it seems to me that the, the overwhelming statement would be that more supply would um, be needed in the market. Now, will that create affordability? I, it just depends. I think if we go back to the original comments of what is affordability. Um, and I know we were talking kind of before we went live at, about how today's new construction will one day be the affordable um, product of the future. So uh, most developers, I think, would tell you that. And, um, and uh, I'll, I'll just maybe leave it at that. Mayor Stewart. Um, let's be blunt. We can't tackle affordability without a whole lot more supply because right now we're outbidding each other. Our children are being outbid uh, for housing and they're moving to Red Deer. And if you want to state the problem, they're moving to Red Deer. 
So we need more supply, but we also need a whole wide range of policies that will allow that supply to meet the needs. I remember back in the, uh, what, 82, 83, where there was supply outstripped demand. That was probably the last time in BC, um, where there was more builders ready to build and not enough buyers. And builders were seeking those niche markets. They were trying to figure out how do, how do I create something that will sell in this market where there's too much supply and not enough demand effectively. Well, we have the exact opposite right now. And if we could get back to some measure of balance, we're going to have builders seeking out niches of affordability. Right now, they're seeking out niches of how can I get the most revenue out of this property. So I, I think you know, municipalities are sitting there waiting for the, um, the applications to come in because we don't get to determine what market the builder is going for. But if we don't increase supply, we're not going to get... Uh, we're not going to be able to solve the challenges with housing affordability. So how important, and I'm going to go to you, Ryan, and then maybe uh, Michael afterwards, how important is the government's initiative around BC builds? Is that going to help us address some of the situation that I think that everybody has identified that when a police officer in the city of Vancouver who works to keep the city safe can't afford to live in the city that they work in, do we need to be uh, focusing on building a supply of housing that supports them and teachers and frontline healthcare workers? I mean, yes. I've always said that you're not going to solve the housing affordability problem in the starting in the city of Vancouver. It's sort of like the idea of taxing for, you know, buyers of Ferraris and stimulating Ferrari production to make it easier for the average person to buy a car. Like, <laughs> it's not going to work. So, I mean, but, but that point you raised, Stu, about... You know, for every community, every city to have a mix of people and to, to recognize, too, that, like, you know, if you live in the city of Vancouver, you know, you get your haircut somewhere. I don't, but people do. <laughs> <laughs> I don't either. But we, <laughs> <laughs> <Not at all. laughs> yeah. but, you know, there's all these services that are provided um, by people who, yeah, maybe not be able to afford to live in the community in which they work. You know, I look towards uh, enhancements in regional transportation infrastructure as part of the solution, not the only solution. Um, but yeah, you know, BC builds from the perspective of, again, stimulating, providing the opportunity for an expansion of supply, but then also, if I'm not mistaking, mistaken, um, looking to encourage uh, the right types of people to move to our communities with the right skill sets. And I feel like to this point, we have not talked about uh, the demand for housing. We've talked a lot about the supply of housing. Um, maybe, maybe I won't open that can of worms right now. Oh, but, I, but I think did. bringing in the yeah. <laughs> people with a, you know, it's not just about the number of people um, moving to our community. Yeah, we have an aging. You mentioned we have an aging population. We've known that for, you know, forever since the baby boomers were born. We were going to get older and older every year. Um, so the solution isn't just more people. It's you know the the, the right people for the right time. Um, so I think there's a conversation there around, um, and this goes up to the, the federal level of, you know, how many people is the right number of people to be coming to Canada when immigration policy set at the federal level and then all of the local planning departments are tasked with figuring out how to house everybody. Um, there's a disconnect there. And um, do we need to be, you know, actively looking at um, the number of people that we are welcoming each year and the, the mix of those folks in terms of skills and education. Mr. Geller. 
You, it's hard to create affordable housing without density, but simply increasing density does not necessarily translate into more affordable housing. That said, we need supply. But we have a number of builders in this room, and while they may quibble with my numbers, the land cost for new housing is probably around $100 to $200 per square foot of building. In other words, the chair that I'm sitting on is worth $400 to $800, just the chair. The construction cost, depending on its wood frame or concrete, is going to be between $350 and $450, $500 a foot. And that's for the entire building, including the corridors that you can't sell. AJ is going to charge interest on the loan, and he's going to require me to pre-sell 60 to 70% of those homes. And that, folks, that's why we build studios and one bedrooms. Not because we can make more money building them, but because they're about the only thing you can pre-sell three to four years in advance of the completion of the construction. And, that, and then you add on the municipal fees and so forth. My point is, if you add up those costs, whether you're in Vancouver or in Langley, it's very difficult to create housing that can sell for less than $800 a foot, $1,000 a foot, $1,200 a foot, $1,400 a foot in Vancouver. And those prices are not affordable to the majority of people, which again is why we need to look at other more creative solutions. Community land trusts, uh, housing created with government funding, and rethinking how we live. I have a project going into the District of North Van right now which proposes that every room be shared, every bedroom, every apartment be shared, even the one bedrooms be shared by two people because that's one way of bringing down rents or sale prices. Why don't we sleep in the living rooms in Vancouver the way people throughout the world make use of their homes 24 hours a day? It may sound unusual, but the reality is we have to be creative. And to that extent, I think the minister deserves full marks for being creative in terms of saying we can't keep doing the approval process the way we have. Yes, we've got to densify. Yes, we've got to put more than one home on each lot. The only thing, Mr. Minister, is don't expect too many people to put four and six homes in one lot without any parking because <laughs> they won't be able to sell those homes. Did I hear uh, you giving a, uh, a nod of approval, some thumbs up there to the, to the minister, and, uh, and in some ways about BC Builds? Uh, the, the fact is I think virtually every developer and person involved in the planning and development community, with the exception of some municipal planners are going to be working overtime to meet his June 30th deadline, are absolutely and totally impressed with the way the minister has taken on all of these uh, issues in a way that I think most people would privately say it's about time. Now, not everything is going to work. Again, in some instances, I worry that higher density is going to compromise neighborhood character. Some people are listening, saying, there he goes again, this old-fashioned guy, worrying about neighborhood character when we have a housing crisis. Well, we should worry about neighborhood character. Mr. Minister, uh, tell us a little bit about the BC Builds uh, initiative, uh, you know, where you hope to get to. But also, can you talk 
to us about exactly how much money has been committed because wasn't there two billion dollars in 2021 and then wasn't there just another announcement two billion like what's the total amount where's it coming from well, well Stu, i'll start by saying after mr geller said something nice i didn't hear anything else he said uh so <laughs> <laughs> all, all, all jokes aside i uh, i appreciate that and uh, first uh, if i can go back one second just to say uh you know we opened with mayor hurley's comment i'll just say that he's a housing champion uh i've had so many conversations with him and i think the point that mayor stewart and uh, and uh, another um, uh, palace have kind of made is what mayor hurley was implying as well which is supply on itself won't address all the challenges, but we also need to focus on having a different mix of supply, whether, uh, of course, we need the market to continue to do what it's doing, but it's gonna require governments to make some serious investments in housing that the market can deliver, and mainly because of the points that your guests have made, you know, interest rate, just costs, uh, input costs. Uh, and so I just wanted to make sure I prefaced that comment. I think BC Builds is a huge opportunity for us uh, on multiple fronts. One, I think there's an opportunity now because we're able to unlock lands. Uh, we've got, uh, we had 20 initial communities just literally by email sending to local government saying who's got land, local First Nations. Uh, and the line is going to get longer and longer because in the end, everyone knows that we need to attract uh, a workforce, uh, nurses, healthcare officials, um, uh, folks who are working in the construction industry, uh, working in police, teachers, all of these skill sets require us to be able to find housing in communities so that people are not traveling uh, an hour to try to get to work because we know that's not working. It's not working for families and we need to find new solutions. So with the BC builds, we've got $2 billion initially to start with financing. We've got close to about a billion dollars for grants and, and, and support for the program. And then the federal government has uh, committed an additional $2 billion I am confident that this concept, this proposal that we've got here in British Columbia, and not only will be successful, but it'll be launched across the country. We've had provinces reach out to us from um, across the country, say, what are you doing? How are you doing it? Uh, how did you unlock the land? How did you identify what land is available, but what's underutilized land, which is really, really challenging. And, and we do see an opportunity in uh, the challenge that we're dealing. We know that uh, the private sector, there's going to be some projects that are just not going to go ahead because of interest rates. And so what we're trying to do is move in with our lands uh, and capture the private sector capacity to build the housing so that we can continue to see housing supply continue to keep the trend line that we need. So the private sector is going to build this, uh, but we're going to make sure that we retain it either by First Nations or the not-for-profit sector uh, going forward. You know, it's just another tool to try to address the, the challenge that we're dealing with in our communities. So I was listening to the announcement uh, when uh, you, the Premier, and the Prime Minister were announcing another $2 billion uh, being dedicated towards BC Builds. And one of the things that struck me was at the end of the Prime Minister's presentation, he goes, and this will ensure that these houses uh, go to the people who should have them and not into the investment portfolio of, he didn't quite say it this way, of those greedy investors. But if we're sending a message to investors, because Michael, I heard you talk about it. David, I've heard you talk about it. Ryan, everybody talks about the role of investors and how important that is. If we're sending a message saying that investors are the, like the bad guys in this, well, then what happens? AJ, without investors buying up pre-sale, uh, how many projects are you going to finance? 
Not that many, honestly. Like, uh, <laughs> you have to understand that there, there's a lot of requirements involved in going to one of these projects to secure financing. One of them is pre-sales, there's many other ones. Um, and and uh, to get an end user to buy in one of these large, you know, th three to five year build condos is really difficult. And then when you have a large project and you have to sell 300 units and Redma gives you a deadline of one year to sell it, whereas other jurisdictions out there, Toronto, you can kind of keep going forever until you sell them all. You don't have a lot of kind of levers that you can pull as a marketing um, developer to, to get those sales in that amount of time. And we are seeing quite a lot of requests coming into the bank saying, hey, AJ, we can't meet our pre-sale requirement. What can we do to kind of rejig the loan so that we can qualify, hit our Redma deadline, and get the loan done, and then we'll keep selling after. Uh, and that happens, I, I don't know, almost on every single deal right now. Um, and, and so the developer, uh, sorry, the investor community plays a really big part in the condo sales because they're there to take that, that risk and buy that unit early on. They can wait the three to five years for development and close. And then after, um, I, I, I'll, I'll go to you know, Landlord BC for, for how many would actually stick around, but I, most of them close. I, I see very few pre-sale contracts getting flipped these days um, and because they have to run it past the bank and they have to do all that sort of thing. Um, and, uh, and, and so like highly, highly important. It's also important in the rental market as well because when you're a developer and you're investing in a condo for sale, your equity requirement you know, is give or take 15%. But with the rates that they are today to build that same um, tower as a rental, you probably need 40 to 45% equity. So the investors helping, um, behind, helping the developer with the equity requirement, they need to see a return on that. And we are seeing deals that we've issued kind of some term sheets on where the developer is saying, okay, well, just hang on a second, AJ. Don't finance that yet because my investor is not sure if they want to go ahead with the project with the returns. So on, I think on both sides, they're, they're really uh -huh. important. David, I saw you uh, wanting to uh, comment on this. Well, I guess I don't really have statistics as to how many of the pre-sales will end up in rental. I think more of them are going to now because of the elimination of short-term rentals in British Columbia. Um, but, uh, you know, again, it's great that we have the secondary market uh, to provide uh, rental housing. The issue is the security of tenure. And from a public policy perspective, uh, I sound like a broken record here, but the fact of the matter is we need to build purpose-built rental. And, uh, you know, the uh, Michael's concerned about character. Uh, I guess I'm not so much concerned about that because we see so many of these, you know, old purpose-built rental buildings spread out throughout the city, you know, and they're all fit in nicely into these mature communities. And obviously, when they were first built, they probably stuck out like a, like a sore thumb. But you know, you have to think long term here. And I think you know, density is not a dirty word. Character, uh, you know, I think we need to get over that. Uh, <laughs> urban design panels. I mean, we're in a crisis here. Give me a break. Uh, so, so there's, uh, you know, lots of opportunity. Uh, we just need to, uh, you know, really, uh, really, uh, I guess 
as a as a group, as a collective government, citizens uh, really uh, really start pushing for for more supply at the end of the day across the income spectrum. Michael, then, then it's, Ryan. It's a sad irony that most of the initiatives that the public is most supportive of don't allow people to buy second homes, impose speculation and vacancy taxes everywhere, keep those foreign investors out of our market, don't allow any short-term rentals. All of those things collectively are going to inhibit the supply of new housing. And that is a reality. And so we'll have to watch and then see, maybe we can relax some of those requirements. But unfortunately, many of the homes, as have been pointed out, approximately 40% of the new condominiums that were built and financed by investors ended up as rental units. And they helped moderate, to a certain degree, the rental rate increases. Now we're going to perhaps try and take those people out of the market. It's a mistake. And as to character, Michael O'Dane is in this audience, <laughs> and once again he's saying, I don't understand why Geller isn't supporting high-rise buildings. He bought his first Jaguar after he built a high-rise building. <laughs> it's true, but my point is <laughs> we have you're to You're talking be, about yourself. <laughs> we have to be thoughtful in terms of the juxtaposition, and you're absolutely right. Putting four-story, six-story apartment buildings in among single-family and duplex neighborhoods, that works. But proposing 18-story buildings next to duplexes and single-family houses, first of all, it's going to destroy that street. And secondly, those homes won't be any more affordable because it was an 18-story building rather than an 8- or 12-story building or six-story building. Oh, Ryan, I'll let you speak, and Mr. Kalan, I'm sure you want to respond. Well, I was just going to interject with some numbers. I didn't know if you guys wanted to duke it out over placemaking. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was just going to put some, you know, we talk about investors that just, you know, uh, you know, 50 to 60% of high-rise pre-sales go to investors. Right? That, that's what it is. And um, some context for that secondary market, the mom-and-pop um condo buyers uh, who put their homes into rental, so that secondary rental market. Over the last, so 15 years ago, one in four rental units in this region was in the secondary market, so it was primarily purpose-built. Today, so 15 years later, almost one in two is in the secondary market. Because over that period, 80% of the net growth in the rental stock was in that secondary market. So it's just, it's, it's context. I don't know if it's a wholly good thing Certainly not a bad thing. Again, if we didn't have all of this this injection of new supply, then um, you know, we talk about affordability. Will all this new supply improve affordability? Well, maybe what it will do is make unaffordable, unaffordability le less worse, right? <laughs> so I think maybe that's what we've seen on the rental front as well. Okay. Secondary market just being the non-purpose-built segment of the market. So it's typically individual buyers buying an individual unit and renting it out to a long-term tenant. Yeah. Or a basement suite, it could be that. Uh, and eventually, in many of those cases, too, the the fam like who, the owner of that unit will have their children move into it. That'll be their first home, or they'll retire into it. Let's go to a quick question, and then I'm going to come back to you, Minister, to talk about the transit-oriented um, 
you know, plans that you have implemented and how that, you know, I can't help but think is uh, the, uh, the right kind of programming that, uh, or program that allows us to really build density down transportation corridors. Uh, it makes sense uh, to me anyways. Uh, but Sean, question number one, it's quite an interesting question. And a short one. Yeah. Yeah. What killed co-op housing? Anybody have an answer for that? Uh, the conservative government in 1993. Well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Minister Kalon, let, let's, let's come back to you and uh, your transit-oriented strategy. Uh, tell us a little bit about it and what you're hoping. You're, and clearly you're going to have a, a couple of bumps along the way because I know that Mayor Stewart's just waiting to hear what you have to say and then he's going to respond. <laughs> Uh, thanks, uh, Stu, and Mayor Stewart and I have had many conversations on this. Uh, I'll, I'll start by uh, a short story, which is I had a friend visit me from Singapore, and we were going to the Whitecaps game many, many years ago. And as we were going through parts of Vancouver, he said, can we stop for a second and get out? And I was thinking maybe he had a few too many beers. Uh, and he got out and he wanted to take pictures of the single family homes next to a SkyTrain station. He just thought it was the most bizarre thing ever where you're investing billions of dollars and, uh, and it's surrounded by single family homes. And, and I think what's important for us uh, to consider and, and partly why we brought this important piece of legislation forward is when governments invest billions in transit, uh, we need to build vibrant, healthy communities around that. That means we should have housing. That means we need to now have healthcare and childcare uh, and even schools being built around that. That's why as a province, we uh, changed the law last year, which allows us to buy land near transit so we can build those com you know, community amenities. So we can have communities that are walkable. And now I know Mr. Geller mentioned parking and you know I agree where there is no transit available, of course you need parking, uh, but when you have multi-billion dollar investment in transit available to you right now, we should be building the right size of parking for that neighborhood, for that community. And, you know, I always say if a proponent's coming forward, they're doing their market analysis, they'll know how much parking they need uh, to uh, either sell the units or uh, rent those units out. And so one of the changes we made with the transit range development, not only was to say, you know, within this range, this is the minimum allowable density within this range, uh, this is the density. We also have said that, you know, you can't require a set amount of parking. Now, we're not saying parking won't get built, we want to make sure that it's the right amount. If you're a not-for-profit building uh, affordable housing for seniors, you don't need for 100 units, 100 parking spots. Um, in fact, I've had not-for-profits say the biggest demand they have is, in fact, uh, smaller stalls for uh, mobile devices uh, so they don't have to come into the unit. There's a place for them to park. Now, if you're selling them for sale, uh, like I know on Project in Port Moody, they are requiring more parking, but right-sizing it so that we can put that and important dollars to more units, I think is is vital. And so I'm excited about the work we're doing. Of course, there's gonna be some challenges along the way, um, but we're gonna work those things through as we move forward. Mayor Stewart. I'm gonna agree 100% with Minister Callan. Look at that. <laughs> there's a pause in the room to just absorb that right now. At least about Take the, the first half. Take the mic away right now. At least about the first half, uh, Coquitlam, actually, we have four SkyTrain stations in Coquitlam and and uh, two others that are pretty close or three others that are, are pretty close to Coquitlam and therefore uh, allow us some density. And we have put density on all of those uh, in all of those locations. 
Um, we are actually, the province, when they agreed to build uh, the Evergreen Line, it was three stations, and we had to buy the fourth one because we, we felt we could put some density in, in the area of Lincoln. It's the Lincoln station. Uh, it's $25 million. We were going to fund it out of the bonus density provisions and essentially allow the developers that reaped the profit from there being a station there to help fund the station. Um, that development hasn't started yet, but uh, we can't fund it out of... Uh, bonus density anymore, so uh, the $25 million is spent, uh, the station is operating and successful, and the developers around it uh, earned a windfall profit because they don't have to help fund the station anymore. And that was one of the challenges. For those communities that were putting density around stations, we were absolutely, five FSR was, was the basic. And uh, the first two and a half you paid for when you bought the land, and the next two and a half you paid for out of the bonus density pro process. Uh, which included incentives for rental housing, non-market rental housing, childcare spaces, all kinds of other elements that we were being able to get developers to offer up in order to get the, the extra density around the stations. So I, I just urge the government to absolutely, let's be flexible about, it. make sure that we get density around stations, make sure we get rental housing around stations. We uh, in Coquitlam have incentivized thousands of units of rental housing around stations, and uh, including uh, affordable, non-market rental housing, some of which the province isn't contributing to, the federal government isn't contributing to. It's all under cross-subsidies. So um, the, from my perspective, stations mean everything. Our problem really can be summarized as being a shortage not of housing but of SkyTrain stations, because if we had more stations, we could build more uh, complete communities around stations uh, that allowed for transit uh, as an option because we can't keep paving, paving the lower mainland in order to accommodate the next uh, 600,000 million cars that are going to come with the population increase. Um, we, we need to find other solutions and uh, public transit is absolutely it. We applaud the investments in public transit, but let's allow municipalities to grow around those stations. Michael. The minister's guest from Singapore was absolutely right to get out of the car and take a picture. Yes. But had I been there in the car with you, Mr. Minister, I would have explained the reason there's no taller buildings here is because the city didn't have the foresight to put in place adequate sewer and water to support higher density housing. And that unfortunately is a reality that we have to deal with. But I want to give you a suggestion. Although I strongly oppose the imposition of the vacancy tax in communities like Parksville and Qualicum, where you're really beginning to compromise, I think, the tourism industry and so many other things, I do think you should look at a benefiting tax or a value-added tax in the area of some of those SkyTrain stations and bus depots, because I did go over to the corner of 41st and Dunbar the other day to see if there were any homes for sale as a result of the fact that new high-rise or mid-rise buildings will be allowed there. And the $2.6 million house is on the market right next to the bus stop for $5.8 million. Now, I don't actually want to see that vendor get a $3 million gain. I would like to see the provincial government reap a little bit, not so much that it will compromise the development, but get a little bit of it. And apparently the mayor of Coquitlam would like you to give him some of the money that you get from those Vancouver properties. 
Samaya, we have one more uh, clip, and this is from uh, Hockey again, and it literally winds up being a question directly to you, Mayor Stewart. Uh, Mayor Stewart has always been a friend of uh, the development community, uh, and he's uh, is one of the easier cities to work with. And so, I'd like to hear uh, on you know how his municipality intends to meet the sort of housing the minimum housing requirements imposed by the province. Aha. Okay, so my career has been in housing, and I'm pretty proud of the work that Coquitlam has done in, in advancing uh, a, a housing agenda, in, in advancing the approval of a lot of housing, particularly around our new SkyTrain uh, stations. Um, we intend to continue with the development of high-density housing around SkyTrain stations in complete neighborhoods, but also the, we, we added about 10 years ago the four houses per lot sort of mechanism in uh, areas of Coquitlam that were particularly uh, well-suited to that kind of gentle densification. Um, and so we continue to do that, although I don't think the take-up will be much. It will actually, uh, I think, dilute the reality that our shortage isn't as much in land as it is in labor. Right now, we don't have enough skilled labor to build twice as many housing units. If we spread the skilled labor out to the end of that cul-de-sac and the end of that road and, there, and over there and some far away from transit, we might be doing a disservice to the advancement of... Uh, townhouse projects or, or six-story wood frame projects that actually have the potential of building a lot more housing per labor hour, if you will. Uh, so our, that, that's one of our challenges. Uh, but we also want to, con ultimately it'll be the development sector and governments, uh, the development sector primarily that builds 95% of our housing. We need to make sure that our um, environment is uh, conducive to the development sector coming in and investing in housing. Uh, we need to be the best community and we, we strive to be the best community to get housing built because we know how important it is in this province, in this, in this region, to increase supply and a wide range of supplies. So it's, it's uh, and we actually have adopted a whole bunch of the, the um, uh, laminated timber, the 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 six-story wood frame, and but but much higher than that. If we if we can um, uh, cross laminated timber, we think that uh, those panelized solutions. Uh, I spent a decade on the committee that writes the National Building Code, and we were envisioning that someday we're going to get to six-story wood frame, and we're there. And we're also going to someday get to mass timber pr production, and we're there. Now we need to ramp up those industries, and, in, and including, as the minister says, the kinds of prefab, the kinds of panelized construction that can speed things up uh, within the sector and reduce the labor per door that currently is the biggest limit that we have in this province. So, uh, Michael, you brought up uh, the reason that the single-family home was there is the infrastructure wasn't uh, in place to be able to go beyond that. Sean, can you please read out uh, question number three, and then I'd like to get a variety of, uh, of opinions on this. Yeah, so building housing is easy. Building hospitals, bridges, sewage treatment plants, dams, and transit systems is very difficult and very expensive. Livability is already poor. Where is the money for infrastructure going to come from? It's an important topic. Um, Minister, uh, have you taken this into consideration as you're saying, let's ramp up density? How are we going to supply those neighborhoods with 
electricity, with running water, with sewage water, wastewater, um, you know, systems. Um, how, do, how do we fit that into the equation? Yeah, no, I appreciate the question. And uh, I think first and uh, most importantly is that the initiatives we brought forward is building housing where infrastructure already exists. Uh, yes, some places it will require upgrading of infrastructure, but we know it's more cost effective to build housing where infrastructure already exists as opposed to areas that are greenfield, et cetera. Um, you know, uh, we've provided a billion dollars uh, to local governments, uh, not through any application base, but just direct grants for them to identify what are the important initiatives that they want to invest in, whether that's amenities or whether that's infrastructure. Some communities are building uh, new sports fields like my community in Delta, or you can look at the Langley City where they're putting the money straight into the ground. Uh, that's one step. Um, we are directly investing. Uh, last year, we invested half a billion dollars into TransLink. Uh, we invested in the Iona wastewater facility. Uh, we're investing in a 911 call center, so it lowers the tax burden on our partners. But we know more is going to be needed. And I think this is where that conversation gets into, you know, uh, should communities uh, be charging amenities? Should they be charging for this and that? I think that's where we need to find that balance between, yes, we need more housing, but yes, local governments also need those important dollars to ensure that we have vibrant and healthy communities. Uh, Mr. Geller has offered a suggestion uh, for more revenues, but we need to look at ways to get more dollars for infrastructure flowing. And this is one of the big conversations I've had with my federal counterparts. We are investing more in affordable housing than any other province in this country. Uh, we're in fact investing on reserve housing uh, for indigenous communities. We're the only province to do so. Uh, and we're investing in fact more than the federal government on reserve. We're doing it because we know government must do this in order to address the challenges we have. And so my message to the federal government has always been, if you don't wanna invest in affordable housing at our level, invest in infrastructure give money to our local government partners so that they can do the work to invest in our infrastructure because i know that will enable more housing opportunities we've seen some of that through the housing accelerator fund but i'm certainly hoping more opportunities will come as we go forward so we're coming down into the final stretch of our time here i know it's just flowing by because it's such scintillating conversation what i'd like to ask each of you is what would you uh, ideally like to see happen in the next six months that can help us move towards what I believe is a collective goal, more housing and trying to keep the prices as stable as possible? Because as we've indicated, we don't want them to drop too much, but let's make it so that it's not so uh, you know, challenging for people to get into the market. So I'm going to, Mr. Hudniak, I want to, from your perspective, what's you know, the number one thing that you would like to see happening over the next six months? Uh, well, I think, frankly, uh, what the, uh, the minister and his government have announced are a great start for trying to solve the challenges that we're, we're facing with the combination of the three bills uh, last November and, and some of the other initiatives. So I think we just need to, you know, ensure that now they're advanced and, and we need to, uh, you know, continue to be, uh, I guess, diligent uh, collectively to ensure that we see see results from what I feel are some really, really positive uh, initiatives. The one thing uh, that strikes me, uh, you know, your comments about infrastructure, what have you, but you also hear that, well, we need the schools, we need the hospitals before we build all this housing. 
You see, the simple answer is build the, build the schools, build the hospitals. You don't need to not build the housing, build, build it all. And I, I think that's the, the attitude that we need to take. And, and like I said, I, I feel that uh, certainly uh, the minister and, and uh, Premier Eby are very much uh, you know, attuned to that, uh, that, the need for us to, to take that approach. And, and frankly, you know, uh, uh, Minister, uh, pardon me, uh, Mayor Stewart, Coquitlam has done a great job. There's no question about it. I wish you uh, the best luck of luck to continue. There's so many, so many opportunities in your municipality. Uh, and really, you know, you have a great partner here, I think, in the, in the provincial government to, to continue to build on your success. AJ, you've indicated uh, in conversation that um, there's, there is money to, that wants to invest in the development of housing, but what has to change from your perspective for us to really be able to, to move forward yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll first off just say I'm incredibly optimistic about the future. I think there's been a lot of innovative solutions that have been brought to the table. We'll see what ends up sticking and what what works out. I'm I'm optimistic that a lot of it will work out. Um, we've we've uh, heard about some investments on indigenous lands. We've heard about mass timber. We've heard about modular housing. Um, you know, we're 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 here and we're we're helping support and lending money for all those types of projects. And we're, we're hopeful for more innovative solutions, particularly ones um, where the cost can be reduced for the developer, land cost, for instance. Um, and I think BC Builds starts to touch on that. So I'm optimistic to see where that program goes and where other future innovative uh, projects will come from. And I think there's some opportunity out there. Ryan, from your perspective. So there's, I mean, there's this confluence of headwinds that are facing um, uh, uh, the introduction of new supply, uh, rising in high materials costs, uh, rising in high land costs, high labor costs, and none of those things are likely to get lower, right? When we talk about inflation slowing, we're not talking about prices going in reverse, we're talking about the rate of increase slowing. So I think that's, we are seeing some of the uh, cost increases abate a little bit. Um, this is outside the purview of anyone in this room, but I think um, the story for our market here, very much so right now, time and place, not long term, is inflation and interest rates. Um, the cost of money is extremely high still. It's prohibitively high in many cases to uh, embark on some of these new projects. Um, and even for buyers, I mean, it was really interesting, um, prices home prices in the region are below where they were a year ago. In fact, they're below where they were two years ago, but it's less affordable for buyers because uh, money costs so much. So um, inflation, you know, we just saw it come down to 2.9%. That's great. Um, if you exclude actually the irony of the, 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 uh, the Bank of Canada's impact on interest rates. So if you exclude that mortgage in, uh, interest cost component of the CPI, you know what inflation is? It's 2%. That's for everything. That's not mortgage interest. So we're heading in the right direction. We are on the path to interest rate cuts. And I do think that that will open the door to a return to some sort of normalcy, not this year, but I, I think beginning in 2025 on the, on the supply front. Michael. I would like the minister to please continue to rethink how we finance growth. And I do compliment you on 
looking at a replacement for these let's make a deal community amenity contributions that some municipalities put the developer through because for those people who are watching us, Stu, the developer doesn't pay that $100,000 per unit charge. The buyer pays it. And the trouble is when the buyer of a new home pays an extra $100,000 for their home, a rising tide lifts all boats. And realtors will tell you if a new home comes onto the market at a $1,400 a foot, all of the existing homes come up a little bit too. So that municipal charge is impacting the entire market, existing and new. When I first got into this business, we didn't charge new home buyers all of the costs associated with growth. They, they, it was put on the taxes and it was paid off over 15 years perhaps, and that's how we financed growth. And I think trying to do something like that will help. The other thing is the province has something called the additional school tax. And again, most of the people who answered the questionnaire think it's wonderful that we're taxing people who live in homes worth more than $3 million an extra tax. But what they don't know is we're also charging every piece of undeveloped land that tax. One of my clients paid $340,000 last year in additional school tax just because there was one bulldozer on the site. Furthermore, that additional school tax actually doesn't go to fund schools. So let's target that, the hundreds of millions of dollars that the province is getting to start funding schools. And it's not necessarily to wait to see the whites of the children's eyes before you start to build the school. Start building it two or three years in advance so the school will be there as the kids move in. Mayor Stewart. What Michael said at the end there, um, absolutely. Uh, growth shall pay for growth. We always um, embrace that principle. What we mean is the costs of population growth will be borne by everyone who doesn't currently own a home. The cost of population growth will only be on those who don't currently own a home, those who are buying new homes. Uh, those of us who live in the suburbs and already own a home, we don't pay anything for the cost of population growth, and yet that's a massive, massive cost. Population growth, that's not the cost of connecting pipes to a building, it's the cost of uh, the infrastructure associated with population growth, so absolutely. And Minister, I would urge you, um, to dialogue, we, you know, I've, I've been in housing all my life. I really, I'm, I'm not in it for the money, believe it or not. I didn't leave the, the development industry and go into local politics for the money. Um, um, not to get a jag either, sorry. <laughs> um, I think there's some really uh, wild perspectives out there, but there's some really valid perspectives in local government in the housing sector, in the nonprofit housing sector, in planners, um, as to how we can improve things. Um, the people that do it now are the ones who are going to be able to improve the, the ability to supply more housing. Um, we need to find a solution on the, on the infrastructure side, absolutely. Mind you, we've been calling for that since the mid-'80s, is how do, we, how do we improve the financing of infrastructure for new development? Uh, because right now it's born entirely by my kids. Either they buy a new home or else they move to, no, I won't say it. 
Oh, Red Deer. Red deer. <laughs> <laughs> Minister Kalon, uh, we started with you. Let's, uh, your closing thoughts. Well, first off, I want to say a big thank you to you. I want to thank all your sponsors for hosting this. Uh, you know, when I first became the Minister of Housing, I read all the reports, uh, Landlord BC reports. I read the Rennie reports. I read the RBC reports. Uh, I, I subscribed to their weekly uh, updates. Um, and of course, I read Mr. Geller's Christmas list of things he wanted. Uh, and, uh, and what I... Uh, Note, I wrote for myself and a little note when I first, uh, well, three weeks in after reading everything I had seen out there was cut red tape and increase supply, invest directly in affordable housing, and most importantly, protect our existing stock. And, uh, and I do feel that that's what our plan has been focused on is those three measures and protecting the rental stock, I think is something uh, very important. I wanna give a shout out to Mayor Stewart uh, we were together with the uh, premier uh, protecting 300 co-ops that were going to be sold because the land was not in a land trust. It was not in, uh, in public hands. And we were able to do that together. And that's the type of partnership that I hope that we can continue to do. Because in the end of the day, uh, the housing crisis that we're in, the challenge we're dealing with is only going to be solved with the same mindset that we had when we were dealing with the pandemic, where everybody put their uh, different views aside, but came to the table to find solutions. And that's what this panel has been about today. Thank you for the dialogue. And I continue, uh, I look forward to continuing to listen and learn from everybody. Uh, and hopefully we can continue to find a path to get more affordable homes available for people in BC. Thank you. You know, my takeaway tonight is that we have a remarkably thoughtful, uh, intelligent and experienced people who care about this issue and they are putting their minds to work to try and find solutions. Uh, as you pointed out, Ryan, we didn't really get into what's driving the demand and why we, we need to also be encouraging people to come here and create an environment for them to live in. But I feel uh, quite confident that we've got an extraordinary group of people who make thoughtful decisions. And I thank you all for your time tonight uh, and for uh, sharing your insights so that you know, I think that the average person who would have watched this would have come away with the same feeling that I do. Um, you know, we've got good minds at work here. So thank you. And thank you to all of you in the room here for joining us and to everybody online. Uh, also, of course, I want to give a great shout out to our sponsors. Without them, we couldn't do this. And please come back and join us on April the 2nd when we're going to look into energy and the environment. How do we meet our energy needs and protect the environment at the same time. Thank you. Good night.